Tonight's reading is on page 272 of the Church Bibles, and it's 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's Prayer. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the hashy. He seats them with princes and makes them a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Please keep your Bibles open. Right, I think Natalie and her crew are just about to go behind for exciting times of their own. Uh, and we'll keep uh, our Bibles open at 1 Samuel 2. We'll be learning the same lessons. Uh, that means we can talk to each other afterwards and uh, see the common ground of what we've learnt. Now, I wonder as we come into 1 Samuel chapter 2, whether we can have this little question in our minds. What will grow your happiness? If someone stopped you in the street, as they do with questionnaires these days, and asked you, what would make you happy right now? What would you say? Well, I guess the answers would be different according to how things are with you at the moment. But probably predictable as well, because if you're someone who's not that well, well, I guess what would make you happy is to feel better. If uh, you're someone who's going through a bit of a tough time financially, well, I guess... A steady job and a regular income would be what would make you happy. Now, the trouble is that when you listen to people who've had those dreams come true, if you like, those answers given to them in the past, in other words, you talk to people who are fit and well and who've not got financial stress, 
they'll still tell you that those things don't make your happiness grow. Ah, fair enough, it's, it's more comfortable to cry in the back of a Mercedes than on the back of a bike, uh, but you wouldn't call that growing happiness. Uh, we know from watching Kids at Christmas, don't we, that that just what I always wanted, wow thing that you've got in your hand isn't going to keep you happy for very long. It's not a happiness that grows. So what is the one thing that not just keeps the happiness you've got, but actually makes it get bigger over time. That's quite a secret to get hold of because not many people have it. Most of the happiness that we have, we go for it and it disappears like a mirage. So let's hear from somebody in the past who did find happiness that grew on her. And we met her last week when she had her baby. Her name is Hannah. And if you turn to chapter 1, that is what Hannah was given. But when you turn to chapter 2, you'll see that her eyes aren't on the new arrival so much. The baby didn't become her idol, the one thing that she kept talking about more than anything else, that it can become to lots of women in her position. No, the only stretch marks that baby has left, if I could put it like this, is on Hannah's view of God's greatness. And here's a simple point. The more we stretch our understanding of God's greatness, the happier and happier and happier we will be. And so the astonishing thing that you see is that this gift that Hannah was given in chapter 1 has now stretched her view of God in chapter 2 in a way that actually will tell you what's going to come in the rest of the book. So these first 11 verses will tell you things to give you a preview of what's ahead. Simply because Hannah looked back. She can tell you what's coming. Well, I'll explain what I mean. As we go to the first thing that Hannah found out, and that is that God delivers. Hey, those are her words, not mine. Look at verse 1. She says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiced in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts of my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Now I might say, Whoa, Hannah, those words are slightly over the top, aren't they? Look, you've only had a baby. Don't go talking in this kind of super exalted way. Yeah, fair enough, uh, Penina is called her rival in chapter 1, verse 6. But to call Penina your enemy, it's a bit much, isn't it? It's just that Hannah wants to make the point that when she tells you in verse 1 that God delivers... She really wants you to have more than a baby-sized picture of God's deliverance. She's using that language of what God has done for her to tie you up with much bigger things that God does when he delivers. So you take those words that she says in verse 1, 
And you might think, um, well, that's quite a way to talk about Hannah's deliverance, but actually, if your name happened to be Miriam, and you were standing on one side of the Red Sea, and you've just seen all the Egyptian army, the whole entire lot being drowned, because they tried to keep God's people in slavery, and God delivered them. Well, verse 1 sounds a bit like Exodus 15, which is where Miriam tells us the same thing. God is big on deliverance. So Hannah's baby is just a, a scaled model. She wants to tell you that this God who delivered in that scaled-down way is capable of deliverance that will blow your mind. And the trouble is, if we don't understand that, then what will happen is that we'll start talking proudly of our own successes, which is what you see in chapter 2, verse 3. Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. You see, we'll big up what we're capable of if we don't get this right, that God is a God who delivers. And we'll start talking about our own accomplishments and what we have managed to do for him. But notice that the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. In other words, friends, our best achievements may not be as significant as they think, as, as we think. Verse 3 actually perfectly describes a person you're going to meet very shortly, a man called Saul. Now, he was someone who was well able to talk very proudly and let his mouth speak uh, arrogantly. Well, you can see that if you just cheat a little bit and uh, zoom out to uh, chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13. And what you see in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3, what do you see? Yeah, you see Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, attacking the Philistine outpost at Geba. The Philistines heard about it. They uh, ran for the hills um, and fled. But how does Saul put it when he gets to verse 4? So all Israel heard the news. What news did they hear? Now, who do you think might have told them that? Saul has uh, defeated the Philistines. So if you put yourself in the forefront of things, you lose sight of the God who delivers. Your happiness won't grow. And actually, it's no surprise, therefore, in that same chapter, you will find that Saul, rather than waiting for someone more authorized to come and take the sacrifices, he himself took the sacrifices that he wasn't properly authorized to do because his people were running away from him and he'd forgotten the fact that God delivers. And therefore, he did that work himself because he'd taken his eyes off the fact that there was a God to deliver them. But Hannah doesn't make that mistake. She goes very quickly from, look what I've got in chapter 1, to I delight in your deliverance in chapter 2. Happiness grows 
when we see more and more of God's greatness and marvel more and more at his deliverance in our shrinking view of ourselves. And the more we see that, the more our joy in him will grow. Second thing God does is he reverses. Now, I guess you spotted that yourself when you looked at verses 4 to 8. It's all about reverses. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. So let's think for a moment about this God who reverses things. There seems to be reversing what is well established. What seems to be absolute certainties, and God goes and reverses them. So take the bows of the warrior in verse 4. Now let me tell you, you won't write them off if you know this book. Because right at the end of this book, in the very last chapter, the bows of the warriors, particularly the Philistine warriors, are going to result in the death of Saul and in the defeat of the whole army. No, take Hannah seriously. Uh, the bows of the warriors... Uh, are to be reckoned with. When the Philistines went home at the end of 1 Samuel, they wouldn't have been telling you that the bows of the warriors were weak. But when you turn to 2 Samuel, you will discover the Philistines don't do very much with their bows when David gets going on them. And then, on the other hand, the flip side of that in verse 4, is that those who stumbled are armed with strength. Now, I really don't know why they put the word stumbled there, because it just means feeble. And that's what the old NIV used to have, but they've changed it to stumble. I don't know why. All the other translations say feeble. Whatever word you use, you get the idea of weakness, don't you? The weak is putting on strength, and before long you're going to meet in 1 Samuel 17 a little boy or a young man, but very young. And you see, he's got a few stones, but he's going to defeat the arrogant words from a very big Philistine when God reversed what you expect, what you might expect to happen. In the same book, you read about a rich man called Nabal who seemed to have everything provided for him where he'd be safe. But he loses his life and the people he refused to feed were provided for. Just as it says in uh, verse 5, those who were full ended up with nothing. Those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has born seven children. I'm not saying that Hannah has seven children. I think I counted six, but she could have done. And Penina's great uh, uh, number of children, well, that number wasn't unchangeable. Death can shrink families fairly quickly. But the remarkable thing when you look at verse 6 is that Hannah's understanding of God's ability to reverse things even make it sound like she believes in a resurrection. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down the grave and raises up. Isn't that astonishing? Now, maybe she's just saying that God causes some people to die and some people to live, but the Bible people often speak prophetically and they say more than they know. And by putting it together like this, 
It is staggering how even before the very first man has been raised from the dead, Hannah's putting together the implications of the God who can reverse things. And therefore a resurrection becomes possible for her in the language that she uses. This is the God who reverses things, remember? And it changed her view of this life entirely as you look at uh, verse uh, 7 and verse 8. Uh, poverty and riches, in other words, are in God's power. Uh, we think if we work hard, we'll shape our future. Uh, we think that if we vote well in 10 days' time or whenever it is, we'll perhaps do better for ourselves with more money in our pockets, depending on which side you choose to win. That's how we're told to pick the right politician by seeing who's going to keep the recovery safe. But the problem is that actually the government doesn't determine our own economy, nor does the stock market, if that's where you've got all your wealth stashed away. No, God can turn a pauper into a prince in a recession and seat them with princes and make them inherit a throne of honor. So careful how you think, what you'll achieve and how you achieve it. Debbie and I were talking today about dear people we've met on the estate who uh, would love to be here, but they're working their socks off, uh, trying to get money so they can get onto the next course that they do academically in order that their future can be brighter at the end of that particular uh, time of study. It's so sad that actually there's this big conviction that if I just do this, this, and this, and this, then my happiness in the future is going to come my way. No, it doesn't work like that. God is the one who determines how our future will be. And someone once said that if you want to make God smile, just simply tell him your plans. <laughs> happiness comes by depending on him to reverse situations. Not thinking that we have all the uh, control. And so therefore I forgot to press my little buttons, but you can see the warriors who are weak and the feeble who are strong as the book progresses. And how Hannah remarkably hints of resurrection because God is good at reversing things. But the last thing that Hannah wants us to know is that God wins. Now, of course, you can't detach one of these things from another. They're all linked together. The God who wins, of course, has to be able to be the God who delivers and the God who reverses, otherwise he won't win. But Hannah wants to look at the trajectory of what it means if you've got a God who delivers and a God who wins. See where the the graph is going. You've got a new future with a God like this if you look at verses 9 and 10. You see, this is the God who's got the controls of a small select group of very faithful people at the start of verse 9. Now, this is the God who will judge the world if you look at verse 10. 
And then there's going to be a king no one can stop or get rid of in the same verse as well. He gives strength to his king and exhort the whole horn of his anointed. <coughs> now Hannah's mapping out a future that hasn't happened in her past, but actually is going to be happening as we go through the rest of this book. Now we might think she's got the order wrong here. Surely you've got to have the king first, and then the enemies get beaten afterwards. That's logical, isn't it? But Hannah changes the order. And as the book goes through, you make an interesting discovery. Because the enemies of God's people, if you like, the nations that God will judge, they're called Philistines in 1 Samuel. They're people we're going to be reading about again and again and again. They represent the outside world. And Hannah's country lived under the cloud of that threat. And I'm afraid, like in a boxing match, all the early rounds go to them. They are the unstoppable ones. In chapter 4, when we get there, you'll find that they absolutely thrash the Philistines. Not only do they thrash the Philistines, they take the Ark of the Covenant of God. They capture that. That is the symbol of God's presence with his people. But they've got it now. And in chapter 5, they take it home. And now there isn't a single Israelite to lay a hand on them. But you read chapter 5, and God is on his own, the ark, and nothing else, essentially kills city after city of Philistines. They drop like flies. Now God is well able to judge the nations just by himself. And then after that, Israel will get its first king. Who happens to be Saul, we've mentioned him before. And actually he acts like a Philistine himself. But then you will get the real king coming into the picture. And he will exhort the horn of his, the horn of his anointed, even though everyone was out to try and stop him. But he will judge the world. And the world includes people like Saul, who acts like the world, acts like the Philistines, even though they claim to be on God's side. They are still on the wrong side of God's anointed and oppose him. So friends, this is a battlefield where there are two sides opposing each other. They're described in verse 9, there are God's faithful servants and there are also the wicked. And remember again, the wicked include the outright outsider enemies like the Philistines as well as those who are amongst God's people who oppose his anointed king as well. If you like people in the church. And together, that exerts an influence of darkness over what happens in this book as we go through 1 Samuel together these coming weeks. But Hannah's happiness will remain if we hold on to these great truths, 
that God delivers, that God reverses, and that God wins. And we know that that is the case because God will set his king in this book and no one is going to be able to remove him. And it's like that with us. We stand on this side of Jesus. God has installed his king. His very existence now proves that God will win and no one will be able to take him on because God has already uh, fixed the outcome. He will judge the ends of the, the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the whore of his anointed. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there will be dark days, but the happiness can still grow in them. Just take a look at verse 9 and you see that ultimate darkness is uh, going to be what the wicked experience. However, uh, the curtains might be drawn for Christian joy. That can still increase. But the place of darkness is uh, absolute and eternal. So what does that mean for us? Well, if you're here and you've never thought about uh, God very much in the past, then I'm going to make two guesses. One is that you've spent your life wanting something to grow your happiness. That would be very natural if that's what you wanted. My second guess is you haven't found it. And we do this, don't we? We grab this idea that something will make us happy, but it doesn't. Well, learn tonight from Hannah, who ultimately finds that her happiness comes by understanding the God who delivers, the God who reverses, and the God who wins. And become his faithful servant. That's what verse 9 9 encourages, doesn't it? He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. When you have a God like this, that's when our happiness begins to have wings and has substance and hope. Become his faithful servant. Make that decision tonight. And follow him for the rest of your life and know Hannah's joy. What happens if you've been part of the church circuit for years and it's easy, isn't it, to think that our church habit will somehow impress God. Now, we've got to be careful how we think of ourselves under God's blessing because we've done uh, uh, things to earn it when we've read verse 3. Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Friends, it's always going to be true that what we've done for God is not likely to be as significant as we think. It's far better for us to think of ourselves as humble servants. I don't know if you uh, know how Jesus spoke of uh, uh, the slave who worked all day for him, and when he came home, he didn't put his feet up, but he quickly had a change, and he served his master again. 
And at the end of it, he didn't say, well, look at all I've managed to achieve for my master today. He says, just simply, I am an unworthy servant. It's far better for us to put our uh, delight in the God who we serve and see the greatness of serving him than think of our service as anything more than the unworthy response of a slave. Now, it's important for us to put the spotlight where it belongs. And then lastly, if you're a believer and you find your joy levels go down because things seem to go wrong for Christians, well, that's what it'll seem like in this book. Isn't it important for us to know right at the very start of the book where to go to for our joy? Now, we can either locate it in the things that he gives us, like Hannah might well have done by locating it in the baby that she was given. That would have been a great thing for her to put her joy in. Or we could locate our joy in God himself, filling up our minds with the God who delivers, the God who reverses, and the God who wins. If you like, feasting on those dishes day after day after day, that will grow our joy. That doesn't mean to say that it's the magic wand that suddenly makes everything in your life turn round and work well. Next week we'll see when you come back. We're going to meet two guys uh, who are... uh, uh, Well... They're scoundrels. But if our joy is in Hannah's God, then that joy won't be suppressed by wrong people doing bad things. Nor will that joy even be static. So we keep on an even keel and stay like that all the time. Now, if we have our understanding of the God that Hannah's going to show us as we go through this book, the God who delivers, the God who reverses, the God who wins, then our joy won't stay where it is. It'll enlarge and grow the way that she did from chapter 1 to chapter 2. That same increasing view of God and his greatness will enlarge our joy as well. Let's pray that God will help us discover those things. But immediately as we praise him for all the truths that we learnt from Hannah tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in a world of enemies and disappointments, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that our hearts are enlarged by your greatness. Our minds delight in your deliverance. As we look and trust in your reversals and wait for the future in which those who oppose you will be broken and when you will exhort your great and significant King, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.